0: It's just not fair. (laughs) Like, how do you follow that? Um, Good morning. How y'all doing? Great, great. Uh, Just a quick follow up to that video, actually. I have three little kids that are downstairs, and I just want to say thank you to anybody here in the room who does hang out with the little kids. Uh, They, you love my children well, and we, those of us who have kids in that ministry, we so appreciate it. So thank you so much. And I know over the summer they need more people. So for real, do that. my name is John Anderson. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at uh, Door Creek. It's great to be with you today. Uh, just a quick welcome to anybody who's here for the first time. Uh, for whatever reason that you've decided to join us, we're so glad you're here. So thanks for, thanks for hanging out with us. Um, hey, I want to start off this morning with uh, just a couple words to honor the mothers in the room on this Mother's Day. Now, I know in a church our size... Uh, in a room just right here, right, as we're together, that many of us approach Mother's Day with some very different emotions, Uh, some really great emotions and some really hard ones. And so I want to read these words uh, from a writer named Amy Young, uh, and I think these express our desire here at Door Creek in honoring all mothers. So let me just read some of these words. To those who gave birth this year to their first child, we celebrate with you. To those who lost a child this year, we mourn with you to those who are in the trenches with little ones every day and wear the badges of food stains we appreciate you to those who experience loss through miscarriage failed adoptions or running away we mourn with you to those who walk the hard path of infertility fraught with pokes prods tears and disappointments we walk with you and forgive us when we say foolish things we don't mean to make things harder. To those who are foster moms, mentor moms, and spiritual moms, we need you. To those who have warm and close relationships with your children, we celebrate with you. And to those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance with your children, we sit with you. And to those who lost their mother this year, we grieve with you. To those who have experienced abuse at the hands of your own mother, we acknowledge your experience. And to those who live through driving tests, medical tests, and the overall testing of motherhood, we are better for having you in our midst. Thank you for being part of our community here at Door Creek Church, and we honor you. I'm going to be honest with you, I do not have a good transition here. Uh, Our our text today has nothing to do with Mother's Day, uh, but it is an amazing story. It is a story full of sex and murder and war and spies and intrigue and family. It is all there. If this story was made uh, for television, it would only show up on HBO. (laughs) But parents in the room who are starting to feel nervous because your kids are next to you, We'll keep things PG, I promise. Now, for those of you who are just kind of joining us uh, recently, we are going through a series this whole year, taking us through the entirety of the story of the Bible. We're calling this the Storyline Series. And over the last three weeks, this is the fourth week, uh, we've been looking at the life of David. And the reason we've been spending four full weeks on just this one person is because David is talked about more than any other person in the entire Old Testament. Not only that, but he is known as a man after God's own heart. But if you've been tracking with us or you know the story at all, you know that he is not a perfect man. In fact, he is a deeply flawed leader. Uh, Just last week, Mark took us through David's probably most well-known and most famous failure where he took Bathsheba for himself and he killed her husband, Uriah. And when David's confronted with this moral failure, he responds with genuine repentance. And in doing so, experiences God's grace. And yet, even though David experienced forgiveness, and uh, there was still significant fallout from his failure. And so today's story is rooted in that. And I'm going to summarize the story from last week up until this week, uh, going through, through 2 Samuel, starting in verse, uh, or chapter 13. And I'm going to go kind of fast, okay? And this will give us the context for the story that we'll look at together. Um, But here's the thing, because I'm going to go fast, I'm just going to recommend right now, if you haven't done this before, go back and read this story for yourself this week because it is an incredible story. So here we go. You ready? Okay. Like two people. Yeah, this is going to be fun. (laughs) All right, so a downward spiral in David's family. It begins really to unravel in chapter 13 when one of his sons named Amnon rapes his uh, sister from another mother. Her name is Tamar, you tracking so far? Now, Tamar has a full brother named Absalom, and he does not take this well for obvious reasons. And so he starts to plan to avenge his sister, and he begins to plot his revenge. And one of the th- things that we see right away about Absalom is that he is a gifted conspirator. And so he actually takes a full two years to execute this plan. And his plan is he brings all his brothers together for this feast under this ruse. And while at this feast he has his brother Amnon killed. And then after that, immediately following this, Absalom flees. He's fleeing most likely from his father in fear of his, David's revenge. Uh, and he lives in exile for three full years. And then at the end of that time, we interact with this really fascinating story in chapter 14 uh, that leads Absalom to be invited back, out of exile, back to the capital city of Jerusalem. But all is not right. Because while Absalom is invited home, David will not personally interact with him at all. And this goes on for two more years. And then in chapter 1425, the author makes what at first seems like a very strange observation. Let me read these, verse, or this, these verses from 1425. Uh, it says this, In all Israel there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head, the sole of his foot there was no blemish in him whenever he cut the the hair of his head and he used to cut his hair once a year because it became too heavy for him it would weigh he would weigh it and its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard now the reason i share this with you is because i can relate to these verses <laughs> i just it's kind of a life verse just want, no 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 the reason is because as strange as these verses are they, they foreshadow Uh, A couple things. One, Absalom's appeal to the masses and also his coming death. Now, what I just did in about 90 seconds, two minutes or so, uh, covers seven years of this very complicated relationship between a father and son, between David and Absalom. And all of that serves as a backdrop for Absalom plotting to take the throne. So this is where we'll jump in together. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 15. 2 Samuel chapter 15. Should be about, again, a third of the way through your Old Testament or wherever you find it on your phone. Second Samuel chapter 15. We'll start in verse one. Let's read it, look at this together. All right. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses, and with fifty men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king, For decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? And he would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, (laughs) your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, If only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case would come to me, and I would see that they received justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way towards all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Okay, let me just pause here for just a second and just share a couple observations that I think can help us. Uh, Number one um, is by him taking a chariot and horses and 50 men, this is how a king would act, right? This is not how an average person would behave. This is behavior of a king. And why Absalom is allowed to do this, we we don't know exactly. The text doesn't tell us. But then throughout this time, Absalom is sitting at these city gates where everybody would come through, and throughout that, he's pointing out this apparent weakness in David's leadership. And he's sharing that if he were in charge, things would be so much better because one of the roles of the king was to uh to give out justice and whether or not that's actually happening apparently it's perceived that it wasn't and absalom's feeding into that now this is a strategy that we are very familiar with right this is how every single politician in our context functions aside from maybe the incumbent right they they point out some kind of apparent weakness in the system and then they feed into the dissatisfaction And then they tell you they'll give you the world right if i were in charge this wouldn't be a problem i would take care of you unlike what you're experiencing now but there's a key difference of what's happening here this is not a democracy and so there's way more at stake and then in verse 6 it says that absalom stole the hearts of the people of israel now this is an idiom that we are familiar with right we talk about stealing hearts or my heart was stolen Um, And it's helpful to note that the translation, it it translates the word heart correctly, but the original audience understood the heart to be the seat or the source of not only emotion, but also logic, right? So when we think about stealing someone's heart or my heart was stolen, we think in terms of emotional things, but the original audience would have thought logic and emotion. And so maybe a better, uh, more contemporary translation would be Absalom tricked the people into following him. And so we see that Absalom, he's this master manipulator, and his plan is gaining momentum, and the tension is building. So let's continue the story in verse 7. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king of Hebron. Two hundred men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept on increasing. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword." Okay, so Absalom, he makes his move, and his plan is well executed. He has enough support that David and the few that are faithful to him must flee the city or face certain death. And then over the next couple chapters, we see David and his men, they're fleeing the city, and the, the story kind of slows down at this point, and we, come, we encounter a bunch of shorter stories that are unified around this theme of loyalty. And what we encounter is a number of people who are loyal to David and some who are not loyal to David. And through it all, we see this consistent description of David being loyal to Yahweh, to Yahweh God. And he's loyal no matter the circumstances and regardless of the outcome of this uprising. On the other hand, Absalom, he cements his rebellion by making this public statement soon after going into Jerusalem. He follows the advice of his advisors, and he has sex with all of David's concubines out in public for everybody to see. Now, this is a a shocking image to us, right? But this was not necessarily an uncommon practice for someone who's coming in to overthrow the government and take new leadership. This was a way of declaring one's rule, declaring one's dominance. And when this happened, Nathan's prophecy to David that took place after David took Bathsheba and killed Uriah, that's recorded in chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. That prophecy is fulfilled. So this was given years earlier. Let's look at this prophecy together. The words will be up on the screen. This is what the Lord says. This is Nathan talking to David. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who's close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. So up to this point in the story, Absalom has the upper hand. And if we're reading this for the first time, we're left in tension because we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how what the outcome is going to be until we reach chapter 17 verse 14 where the author writes this. And I realize I'm jumping around so these words will be up on the screen. 17:14. Absalom and all the men of Israel said, "The advice of Hushai the archite is better than that of Ahithophel, for the Lord has determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. Okay, so what's happening here? So soon after entering Jerusalem, Absalom gathers together his advisors and basically saying, okay, this is going well so far, but how do I defeat David once and for all so that I can be king? And so he gets a number of different uh, kinds of advice. Two specifically are recorded in the text. And God causes Absalom to take the bad advice and to confront his father in battle. And in this moment, we see that God is working throughout this story. And the next scene in the story is the beginning of this battle. So let's, again, if you're not following along, I want you to jump in here because we'll look a little closer at this part. 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 4. The battle is about to begin. Starting in verse 4. So the king, that being David, stood beside the gate, while his men marched out in units of hundreds and and of thousands. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, and this is so key that we catch this next sentence, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There Israel's troops were routed, by David's men and the casualties that day were great 20,000 men the battle spread out over the whole countryside and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword now Absalom happened to meet David's men he was riding his mule and as the mule went under the thick branches of an oak tree Absalom's hair got caught in the tree and he was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept on going so that hair is back When one of the men saw what had happened, he said to Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Joab said to the man who had told him this, What? You saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I would have given you ten shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. But the man replied, Even if a thousand shekels were weighed out into my hands, I would not lay a hand on the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, protect the young man Absalom for my sake. And if I had put my life in jeopardy and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. Joab said, I'm not going to wait like this for you. And so he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart. While Absalom was still alive in the oak tree, and and ten of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. And now that Absalom is dead, the battle comes to an end. And the only thing that's left is for David to receive the news of how the battle has been resolved. And the question becomes how will David respond? Right? Because on one hand, his son has just been killed. But on the other hand, the rebellion has been overthrown, and his own life has been spared. And so let's look at David's response. Uh, it's recorded in chapter 18 at the end of this chapter in verse 33, and these words will be up on the screen. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, "Oh my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, Oh Absalom, my son, my son." And in this distress-filled moment, we catch a glimpse of David's heart because he is not only mourning the death of his son, but also the destruction brought on his entire family that are rooted in his mistakes of the past. And this is a story really in its essence about the destruction caused by rebellion and the abuse of power. And Absalom's story, in many ways, is the human story, right? It's our story. Absalom rebelled against the powers over him, and he abused his power by using it solely for his own gain and benefit. He wanted control. He wanted to sit on the throne, and he wanted it when he wanted it. I mean, this is fundamentally this is the same sin as Adam and Eve when they took of the tree, or took the fruit of the tree that God told them not to, and in doing so, they were seeking to have control instead of submitting to God's control. And this is our story, too. This is every one of our stories. We have all rebelled against God, which leads to our own destruction, apart from God's saving grace. But through the power of Jesus' death and resurrection, we are given a pardon. And this is the good news of the gospel, right? This should be, help us be a people of grace and of joy. The letter uh, to the Romans in chapter 5, verse 10, Paul writes this. For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? So what this is saying is that while we were still enemies of God, not we hadn't like come together, we hadn't created a truce, we were still enemies of God. He gave up Himself and died for us. Now we see in the story that David longs to have had the opportunity to die in the place of his son. But we have one who did just that in Jesus Christ while we were still enemies. And with that comes this invitation for anybody here in this space who has never placed their faith in Christ. And the invitation is to be forgiven for our rebellion and to be welcomed, to be reunited back into the family of God. And for the rest of us who have already placed our faith in Christ, we have experienced this forgiveness. (laughs) But it can be so easy to move back into patterns of rebellion, isn't it? And this story serves as a warning of the destructive power of those wrong decisions. Because like Absalom, when we seek to pursue what we want, when we want it, and how we want it, without regard to others, that has destructive powers. And it is so important that we take sin seriously because it has the power to destroy all that is good in our lives. But sometimes it's hard to think about it that way, isn't it? In his book, uh, The Smell of Sin, which is a little bit of an older book now, but the author Don Everts tries to help us to more fully experience Jesus' teachings around sin by using uh, modern metaphor and story and poetry. Let me just read one excerpt from his book. Uh, He describes this common misconception about sin this way. Here's what he writes. What's it like to sin? (laughs) It's fun. It is tremendous fun. It's like a carnival. Now, we we know we're not supposed to go to that fun carnival because Jesus' land of boredom and righteousness, which is just on the other side of town, it might lose some business. But just look at the rides. Look at the huge crowds of laughing people. Just take a whiff of the popcorn. The way of God seems so stuffy and boring and right. Yes, it's right, of course. But I'm sure Jesus will understand. I mean, if he really expected us to stay 24-7 in the land of boredom and righteousness, he would have thought up better rides than organ playing and Bible reading. And then he goes on to write this. This small lie is insidious. And it inhabits the very air that we breathe. It's all around us, and it can eventually have its way with our hearts. And later in the book, he, he pulls from Scripture to paint a more honest picture of the destructive power of sin. And he describes the scene something like this. Just picture it with me. It's like you're going out on a picnic today, right? This is a perfect day for a picnic. And you go out to your favorite spot, It's out in a beautiful field overlooking uh, just the beauty of nature. And you've packed uh, an amazing picnic lunch. And so you sit down in the field, and you spread out your picnic blanket, and you set down your picnic basket, and you pull out the sandwiches and the fresh fruit and cold drinks. And you sit down. Instead of eating the food that you packed, you start to dig into the grass and the gravel around you, and you start to put the pebbles and rocks and dirt into your mouth instead. And you begin to chew on that. As you continue to shovel that into your mouth, it begins to crack your teeth, and your gums begin to bleed, and then you begin to choke. And that graphic image, more accurately, describes the destructive power of sin. And we see that in the story of David and Absalom. as they live as they are living outside of God's will, it leads down this destructive path to their whole family. And so our motivation for godly living, for those of us who are following Christ, it should not come from a place of fear or a place of guilt, but rather out of this longing to flourish, to truly live, believing that our God is a loving Father who wants what is good for us. And so here's an encouragement I just want to encourage you all with, and this is a pattern that I'm trying to build into my own life, and it's on a regular basis Just praying a simple prayer throughout my day, and little pauses and moments as I remember it. And it's this: is asking God to open up my eyes to any ways that I'm living outside of His will, by things that I'm doing or things that I'm not doing, and to make me aware of those things, and then just to pray for courage and wisdom to be obedient. So it could just be a super simple prayer like this, right? Just as you're going throughout your day, that we become a people who have are in the habit of just saying, God please open up my eyes to anything going on in my life where I'm outside of your will by things that I'm doing or not doing. And then give me the courage and the wisdom to be obedient. And as we do that, and as we listen to the Spirit who's living inside of us through the power of the Spirit, it transforms us. It transforms us individually and as a community. Now this story is also a cautionary tale about the abuse of power David abuses his power when he took Bathsheba and killed her husband Uriah. And later, that that set the foundation for Absalom when he tried to take the kingdom. Henry Nouwen argues that the abuse of power is one of the greatest weaknesses of the modern church. And he's one of my favorite authors, and he writes this in this short little book called In the Name of Jesus. And if you haven't read it, I highly, highly recommend it. Here's part of what he writes. Uh, And it's a long quote, so you can follow along on the screens. When I ask myself the main reason for so many people having left the church during the past decades, the word power easily comes to mind. One of the greatest ironies of the history of Christianity is that its leaders consistently gave into the temptation of power. Political power, military power, economic power, or moral and spiritual power even though they are continue to speak in the name of Jesus, who did not cling to his divine power, but emptied himself and became as we are. Every time we see a major crisis in the history of the church, we always see that a major cause of rupture is the power exercised by those who claim to be followers of the poor and powerless Jesus. And then he goes on to say this, and I think this is such a powerful quote. It seems easier to be God than to love God. Easier to control people than love people. Easier to own life than to love life. And I find that a hard but often true statement. But here's the challenge for us, I think. it is can be hard to identify if we are people who are abusing power or even if we have power, right? Because I think it's a little bit like this. If I went around this room and I asked you all if if you are financially rich, most of you, I'm guessing, most people when they are asked this question say no. And the reason they say no is because they automatically think of someone who has more money than themselves. And in the same way, if I was to go around and say, are you a powerful person? Most of us would say no. But I would argue that all of us have power. In fact, probably far more than we realize. We have power in every relationship that we have. We have power in every purchase that we make. And in a thousand small acts a day, we exhibit our power. And the abuse of power happens when we try to use it to the benefit of ourselves at the expense, or I think maybe even more importantly, at the indifference of others. And so how how do we combat this abuse of power in our lives? Well, we do that having the same attitude of Jesus, where it says in Philippians chapter 2, it says these words, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage or his own power. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross." So the way of Jesus is to give up our power in sacrificial service to others. Now, really practically speaking, this means making our choices throughout our day based on verse 3 of that same chapter where Paul writes, In humility, value others above yourselves. And so here's an immediate challenge for us all today, okay? And I want us to have some fun with it, and my challenge is try to do something in the next 20 minutes, right? We're gonna leave here in just a few minutes, and before this just kind of goes out of your mind, you go on to your next thing, or the celebration, or whatever you're doing next, here's the challenge. What are some small choices you can make today to value those around you in a way that puts them before yourself? Now, my, in my world, that usually comes down to diapers. I have a, uh, an 18-month-old daughter who, man, if she was potty trained, like that would be the best thing ever, but she's not. And I'll just be honest with you all, um, the temptation for me whenever she has a messy diaper is just to pretend it's not there <laughs> in hopes that my wonderful wife will notice first and take care of it. Because nobody likes changing diapers, right? If any of you do, come and talk to me. I have an opportunity for you in the next few minutes. But man, I've been so convicted as I, as I prepared this message, and I knew this before, but this has been a really good reminder to me, that to love my wife before myself is to just pick sweet Hazel up and change that diaper. Or when our kids wake up in the middle of the night and I lie there and I'm like, maybe I'll just pretend I'm sleeping. <laughs> no, to get out of bed and take care of, take care of her. We have a thousand small opportunities throughout our day, from from silly things like where we park in the parking lot to where we sit in the sanctuary to... Just the list goes on and on and on and on. What are ways that we can become a people where we have the habit of asking throughout our day, How can I put, and then fill in the blank with whoever's around you? Maybe you don't even know their names, but how can I put that person and their needs before my own? And as we start to do that in our lives and in this community as a church, more and more through the power of God working in us, y'all, amazing things happen because we begin to smell and look and feel more like Jesus, because it's not about us. It's about us reflecting the love of God. And when people interact with us, they're interacting with Jesus. And there is something amazing and unique and powerful about that. So here's my hope for us, is that we may become more and more a people who are increasingly having hearts after God, where we turn from our rebellion to submission for our own good and for the good of those around us and that we use our power, whatever it may be, to serve those around us by putting their needs before our own. By God's grace, as that happens, let's sit back and just watch how God works. Let me pray for us. Father God, I praise you that you are God that sent your Son while we were still enemies of yours, that you didn't wait for us, but that you came to us and sacrificed yourself. And through your death and resurrection that we can find new life. And I pray for all of us here in this room who are listening, especially those who are following you, help us to take sin seriously and help us to live according to your will so that we might flourish and so that those around us might benefit as well. And help us to be a people that use whatever power we have, whatever small decisions we make throughout our day, to put those around us before ourselves so that we can reflect who you are. Just thank you so much for what you're doing in our midst. In your name, amen.